Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Welcome to the Waco History Podcast. I'm Randy Lane, great-grandson of Waco architect Roy E. Lane. Over a hundred years ago, he designed the Alico Building, Hippodrome, and other well-known landmarks. My co-host, Dr. Stephen Sloan of Baylor's Oral History Institute, is helping me learn Waco's known and unknown stories. On this episode, Waco during the Civil War. And he would yell out Waco like a cat. He would imitate a cat screeching. Do you, Can mean, you do it for us? I'm not going to do it. Oh, <laughs> Dr. Bob Elder joins us to talk about life in Texas leading into the Civil War. We also talk about Sam Houston's fight to keep Texas in the Union. And one story is that somebody tried to dynamite the hotel oh and gosh. he had to leave town in a hurry. And now, join us on a trip into Waco's past. Cross the Brazos and Waco. All right, Stephen, welcome back to the studio. You've brought a guest as usual. Waco history, we can do 20th, we can do 21st century. We went with uh, Dr. Yelderman way back. Way back. And so we want to make sure that 19th century gets covered well. And Civil War, of course, is a is a huge topic. And so I thought we'd take it in bits. Okay. But we've got an expert with us today, Dr. Bob Elder, who is a new colleague in the Department of History at Baylor University. He is an expert on Southern U.S. history, among other things. And so he's not from Texas. Oh, no. Yeah. yeah. So listeners, you can just qualify anything else he says with that fact, that he's not from Texas. But I asked Bob to look in. Particularly, I thought secession is actually an interesting story in Texas, and there's a Waco angle to the secession okay. uh, of Texas at the beginning of the Civil War. And so I knew we need an expert to talk to us about this. Mm-hmm. And so I brought Bob in. So welcome, Bob. Thank you. Happy to be here. We're talking about the Civil War in Waco. So kind of tell me, where is the beginning of Waco's history in the Civil War? Historians will go back as far as you let them. And in this case, uh, fortunately, uh, you know, Waco was not even really founded too far before the Civil War. I think about 1849 is the first time when you can actually claim a Waco. And so there wasn't a whole lot of prehistory leading up to the to the Civil War. But during the the kind of lead up to the Civil War, Waco, there's at least a couple kind of famous incidents uh, where Waco plays a pretty uh, central role in Texas's discussion about secession and whether or not it's going to secede. In particular, this famous incident uh, where Sam Houston came to Waco in early 1861 and by some accounts got run out of town (laughs) uh, because he had some unpopular opinions about secession and the union and things like that. Tell me about it. The story itself is probably quickly told and then there's a lot of different 
angles and different contexts that you kind of have to fit it into. But the story is that during the winter of 1860-1861, which historians we sometimes call secession winter. So Lincoln is elected in November. And then over the course of the next couple months, you have uh, several states, including eventually Texas, secede before Lincoln even takes office. And then there's another wave after uh, the firing on Fort Sumter in April. And so it's during that winter, Houston is well known in Texas for his unionist stance. Mm -hmm. um, he, he is very anti-secession, which is kind of a dangerous thing to be in Texas during that period. Houston is probably one of the most prominent unionists in the entire South during this period. So he he's known well beyond Texas. He'd been floated as a presidential candidate at least a couple times seriously in the late 1850s because he was seen as this figure who was, who's, whose kind of Southern credentials were unimpeachable, hmm. but who was also for the union. So he, he could appeal to a much broader audience, including I've always found it somewhat strange. Uh, New Yorkers who love Houston. He has, <laughs> his, his, besides Texas, his strongest political base is New York. It's during that winter, and the citizens of McLennan County write a letter requesting Houston's views on secession, okay. which you kind of suspect they knew, but they wanted him, I think, to go on record or, or something. And Houston responds in typical fashion by actually coming to Waco to give them his response in person. And he comes on New Year's Day, 1861. He is the governor of Texas at the time. He'd been elected in 1859. And he gives a speech on the south side of the courthouse. And one account that I, I found of it in an Austin newspaper that was reprinting an account from Waco. I haven't been able to find a copy of the Waco paper, but the Texas State Gazette reprinted an account from a Waco paper. And they said they claimed that the speech was three hours long, which <laughs> is actually, I, for Houston, that was not too long. <laughs> He'd given much longer speeches than that when he was in the Senate. They claimed it was three hours long and that there were at least 2,000 people there. The account in the paper, which the paper is uh, the Texas State Gazette was very pro-secession. And the account in the paper from the Waco paper says that the crowd was very respectful, listened to Houston, who's after all, you know, a towering figure in Texas mm -hmm. politics. So you can't you can disapprove of Houston, but you it's very hard to disrespect him, right? Mm -hmm. You don't want to be seen as disrespecting him. So they, they claim that, you know, it's a very kind of respectful atmosphere. Everyone hears him out. Houston makes his argument that Texas, uh, which, which he'd made in a lot of different places, which is that, uh, you know, it was a really kind of dumb move to leave the Union, that it would end up in bloodshed and the Confederacy would fail. And also that slavery was more protected in the Union than out of it, that, that leaving the Union would actually endanger slavery more than staying in it. So he's a fascinating figure in terms of slavery. He'd, he'd opposed the extension of slavery several times during the 1850s, which made him very unusual. But he was not by any means an abolitionist. He, he thought that constitutionally it was protected, that the federal government needed to, to kind of stay out of that. But he thought that it was, the argument that he made that day was that it was safer in the Union than out of it, that once you leave the Union, then the, the U.S. government can do whatever it wants. It's not bound by the Constitution. 
the crowd in Waco uh, responded by reportedly at the end of the speech, someone said three cheers for South Carolina, which was the only state at that moment that had actually seceded just less than two weeks earlier. Mm. And there were three massive cheers for South Carolina after the speech. Other accounts of the speech say that it was not nearly as respectful as the newspaper account, that there was kind of heckling going on and people yelling uh, at Houston. And by one account, he actually did get run out of town. He tried to stay the night at a hotel down on what was then Bridge Street. And one story is that somebody tried to dynamite the hotel oh and he had, to, <laughs> he had to leave town in a hurry. Which, to be clear, that, that story could be true because mm-hmm. there were a lot of crazy things going on, including lots of bloodshed during that period, especially towards people who were suspected of being anti-secession. I mean, it really was a, a very tense political situation. So in some ways, Houston was was lucky. Bob, as you're, even as you're talking about it now, you know, Houston's integral in getting us into the union. So I'm thinking about what his view would have been towards being a unionist and what it meant to be a unionist. Of course, Houston had played a, a central role not only in kind of the creation of Texas as a separate country. I mean, everybody knew the story of, you know, the Battle of San Jacinto and Houston's role in that. He was the first and third president of the independent Republic of Texas. He was then, when Texas was annexed in 1845, he was he was the first of the two senators that Texas sends to the U.S. Senate. And Houston played an integral role when Texas, when there was this kind of dance going on between the United States and Texas about whether annexation was going to happen or not. Houston played this, an integral role in actually kind of teased the United States with the prospect that, hey, if you don't annex us, then Britain is really willing to come in and be our military and political protector. That'd be interesting. And people in the United States were were kind of petrified of that because there was a history of kind of Britain interfering in this part of the country and in Mexico and those sorts of things. I think it's kind of clear now Houston was only doing that to to put some pressure on the United States and the various administrations that he was dealing with. But at the time, it was a really effective political tactic. So he had shed blood, both in reality and politically, to kind of get Texas into the Union. But I think even more than that, I think to understand Houston's attachment to the Union, you really have to go back to the fact that he was a protege of Andrew Jackson. A lot of people thought that Houston was the protege, that he would be the next president. And it was only the fact that he had had this, basically his a political scandal when he'd been the governor of Tennessee, where he left his wife and that that created a, a kind of political scandal that he couldn't survive in Tennessee. And that's how he got to Texas, is he <laughs> left Tennessee and went to Texas because of that. It, it didn't hurt him in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> the frontier's a little bit different. Yeah. That's <laughs> funny. But he had Jackson's kind of deep, abiding, almost, you know, mystical attachment to to the Union. He'd fought under Andrew Jackson at the Battle of Horseshoe Bend. 
He adopted all of Jackson's political positions. And Jackson, of course, was a Southerner. He was a slaveholder, but he was also passionately opposed to any form of or hint or threat of disunionism. And so I think for, for Houston, it was a combination of kind of he'd done this work to bring Texas into its independence and then to the Union, but also this this older, deeper allegiance to an actual person, Jackson, who by then was was dead. And that, I think, helps to explain this the comment that people talk about at the end of Houston's life where he says he's the last almost of a race. And I think he's really, he's talking about himself in Jackson. I mean, he sees himself in that line. Is there anything else interesting about Houston besides being run out of town for his <laughs> beliefs? So one other interesting part about that that whole exchange is that I think one way to to talk about it of course is that Houston is kind of rightly I mean we kind of see him as 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 a kind of hero who resisted secession who saw where it would lead and those sorts of things he also had his own angle on it though and this this is the something that completely separates Texas and Houston and this whole story from everything else that crazy that was going on that winter. Houston, for several years before the Civil War, had gotten this idea into his head that the United States needed to go ahead and finish the job they had started in the Mexican-American War and take over Mexico. Hmm. And so several times when he's in the Senate, in the late 1850s, he expresses this idea of, of what he called a protectorate. And his his argument was that Mexico was extremely politically unstable, which was true. They'd been through, you know, over 20 different revolutions and regime changes since winning their independence from Spain. And that it created instability on the southern border of Texas and the United States, which is something we're still arguing about. And so in order to kind of provide some stability, both for the Mexican people themselves and for Texas and the United States, the United States needed to kind of just extend their political power over Mexico. It was never quite clear how that would work. But Houston never gives up that idea. And so even on the very eve of secession, he makes a series of arguments that are kind of last ditch arguments where he says, let's go ahead and secede, but if we are going to secede, don't join the Confederacy. Let's just go back to being an independent republic. And the end game for Houston, one suspects, well, you don't have to suspect, he, he wrote about it. Um, the end game for Houston was a separate Texas that could then carry out this plan of taking over Mexico and creating a Mexican protectorate. So there's these hilarious, I mean, I to a historian, hilarious. <laughs> in the Senate, Houston, when he's in the Senate in the late 1850s and, and kind of this issue is looming, but Houston also has this idea of the protectorate, he keeps asking the United States to provide money and weapons for a huge force of Texas Rangers. And his argument is this is just for security. He said, we don't need U.S. soldiers. Let us do it ourselves. Just give us the money and the weapons. And pretty clearly, he's trying to raise the funds and weapons for his own kind of private army. <laughs> and this is an age when other Americans actually did this. You know, uh, there's an American, William Walker, who went down and took over Nicaragua and uh, during the same period. And Houston is clearly kind of considering that sort of, of a venture. And he's still considering that even 
in in early 1861 as as Texas is about to secede. So there's this great letter right after he comes to Waco, this great letter that he writes where he says to a correspondent that the same spirit of enterprise that founded a republic here will carry her institutions southward and westward. And he's writing this in January 1860. So he's he's still thinking at that point, I can divert this energy of secession towards an independent republic and and a protectorate of Mexico. And he ends up failing to do that, obviously. But So if he had actually succeeded with that, we could have had like three different nations and one that extended way into Mexico? Oh, I mean, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't think... Well, I mean, it was as well thought out as any of the ideas <laughs> that badly thought out. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was better thought out than secession, probably. I, yes. <laughs> I think it goes without saying that he could definitely have his own podcast for sure. He sounds like quite a character. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, the, the language that Houston used, he was one of the best stump speakers, I think, in American politics at the time, for sure. The accounts of him speaking are kind of just legendary and very colorful. One example is Houston actually had a, a somewhat uh, adversarial relationship to Waco even before this event. Ooh, I like it. Because Waco had been the site in 1857. Houston was running for governor in 1857 and actually lost because of his pro-union stance. He, he wasn't hardline enough. And then he came back and won in 1859. And the state Democratic convention that year met in Waco. And in that, in that time period, Texas politics was really either pro-Houston or anti-Houston. <laughs> Those were the kind of parties. And oh, the, the convention that met in Waco were the anti-Houston Democrats mm -hmm. who nominated the guy that ended up winning, Hardin Runnels. Houston had a little bit of a, you know, a prior bone to pick with Waco. And reportedly, when he was on the stump for the 1859 run, and he would talk about this 1857 convention in Waco, and he would yell out Waco like a, a cat, he, like a cat screeching. He would imitate a cat screeching. Do you, like, can I mean, you do it for us? I'm not going to try. Like, I don't know. There you go. <laughs> that, no, I think that's exactly right. And I mean, that was I, Randy, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I came across this account in a newspaper, which means people were reading it, right? I mean, people knew that he'd been kind of teasing Waco before this. <laughs> so I think that kind of helps to account a little bit for his reception in, in addition to the fact that most folks in McLennan County were probably pretty pretty determined by that point to, to leave the union. Can you give kind of a little bit of overview, Bob, of secession? You talked about South Carolina. Yeah. Of course, we know they're first and parades yeah. and all, <clears> the, <throat> all the fanfare that went along with that. But someone's listening and they're not they're not that aware of mm -hmm. of kind of like that me. process. Yeah, sure. <laughs> There's obviously a long run up to the election of Abraham Lincoln, which we'll skip. <laughs> yeah, you can skip that. Part. But uh, I mean, what a lot of people don't realize is Lincoln's not on the ballot. Right. In, no, he's in seven. The, in how, most of the states that end up seceding, I don't remember the exact. He's number. not on the ballot. Right. Which mm. is really amazing. Yeah. yeah. Which helps to explain somewhat, right, from the perspective of some white Southerners, why they see Lincoln as illegitimate. I mean, they didn't, they literally didn't even have the option. He wasn't on their ballots. I mean, he mm. wasn't part of the conversation. So Lincoln is elected in, in November, and there is 
instantly, almost instantly begins this process in a lot of southern states, including states that don't end up seceding, like Kentucky, Delaware, Maryland, where state legislatures, governors, state legislatures begin calling uh, secession, state conventions, secession conventions, which were mirrors of the conventions that ratified the Constitution. And the Southern argument is you know, that if we got ourselves into the Constitution and the Union, we can get ourselves out the same <laughs> way. That is a, an extremely I think we kind of take for granted that secession was a pretty unanimous decision and that most southern states were unified in making it, and that's not the case at all. I mean, when you look at most of these secession conventions, in some cases the votes were pretty close. Uh, there was a lot of effort on the backside to portray them as un unanimous and unified. But in a lot of cases, I mean, Georgia in particular, but Georgia, Virginia, I mean, several places, it was it was pretty close. Yeah. South Carolina wasn't that close. <laughs> and <laughs> Hence in, the chant. In the, end, in the end, Texas wasn't that close either. But in most states, there are these secession conventions. South Carolina happens to be the first one to, to push it through, which only confirms, there's a famous uh, quote, from a South Carolina unionist at the time, James Pettigrew, who says that South Carolina is too small for a republic and too large for an insane asylum. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> so South Carolina goes in December, late December uh, of that year. And then there's, there is another wave where a kind of first wave where six states go out and then, and including Texas, which is the very end of this first wave. And all of them go out through the mechanism of this secession convention, except for Texas, which ends up being uh, the only state that holds a po an actual popular referendum on secession. And it does that because of Houston. Houston is still governor. He lets the secession convention go forward, but he argues that legally they cannot simply take the the state out of the union and kind of leave them in limbo, that there has to be a popular referendum, that he won't let it go forward without a popular referendum. And he gets that. And now he loses, you know, by large margin. I mean, Texans vote, the convention votes by something like 90-something percent for secession. And then the popular referendum also goes by a, an overwhelming margin, but not a, not nearly a unanimous one. I don't remember what the numbers exactly are, but it's something like something in the 40,000 vote for secession and 20-something thousand vote against it, I think. I've got the McLennan County vote. Yeah. If you okay. want it. it was 586-4 and 191 against. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, that that's pretty right. representative. Yeah. yeah. Which, you know, that I think that's significant when you when you look back and, and say, you know, you look back at something like secession and the Civil War, something that in hindsight often gets portrayed as this unified, homogenous popular opinion about it. And it really wasn't. Even in a state as unified as Texas, and Texas was one of the most, in the election of 1860, all the traditional parties had fragmented in that, that national election. And the Democratic Party had split into two wings, the kind of traditional standard Democrats who had nominated Stephen Douglas of Illinois, and then the Southern Democrats who were the hardline pro-slavery Democrats who nominated John Breckinridge. And Texas, 
gave Breckenridge the highest percentages, I guess, of any, if you look at a map, kind of a heat map of the election and who won what counties and states by the highest margins, Breckenridge won Texas by a, a really high margin, higher than he got in any other state, I think. Mm. Um, and so, but even in that environment, there were still a good number of people that were not sure this was uh, this was the right thing to do. The interesting fact is there probably would have been more popular referendums. Several other states had planned to do them, and then Fort Sumter happened. Lincoln calls for 75,000 volunteers, and that's a completely different thing. After, after that, popular referendums are no longer needed <laughs> in some of the other states that secede. So do you think, given what you told me about Sam Houston, that him calling for the popular referendum was to save some political face because he didn't agree with where they were going? I think Houston somewhat misjudged how much sentiment there was for secession. He either did that or he either overestimated his own ability to persuade people (laughs) uh, about this issue. (laughs) So he's pretty surprised by how lopsided the convention vote is for secession. But I think he views the popular referendum as just one more thing you know, where he might be able to kind of stem this tide. And he has that, this deep abiding Jacksonian belief in the people, you know, and he, 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 I think he really thinks, you know, if it's going to, if we're going to save this thing, maybe that's where it will happen. Mm. And yeah, that's not what ends up happening. (laughs) So we're talking about Fort Sumter after that. So Texas has seceded. And at that point, How does Texas and Waco factor into the Civil War at that point? Texas is somewhat unique because it's not the site of many major military. There was the Battle of Waco. I mean, (laughs) Randy doesn't know about that. Uh, Stephen can tell us about that. (laughs) He probably knows a lot more about that than I do. (laughs) But Texas provides a lot of men for the Confederacy. They provide a lot of manpower. A lot of it comes from obviously the more populated eastern regions of Texas at that time. Texas was, if you look at a map of, there's a famous 1860 map of the enslaved population of the United States. And if you look at that map, you can see exactly where slavery and cotton agriculture had gotten to by 1860. And it's it's not exactly the Brazos River or the I-35, but it's close. And the more that that these counties and towns and people were devoted to cotton and to slavery, the more kind of committed they probably were to the Civil War and to the to the Confederacy. So McLennan County, the, the percentage was that 37 percent of the population in 1860 was enslaved, according to the census, which is a pretty high percentage and it drops off dramatically as soon as you start going west so the counties west of here have like 10 15 and then then next line over is like five two zero it just disappears after mclennan so we were that line of where the slavery was and then i'm guessing farther east it gets high too yeah i mean it's highest in kind of the mississippi delta areas of south carolina some areas of virginia and lower louisiana those areas, though, didn't always translate perfectly into support for the Confederacy. There's a lot of pockets of unionism in these really high slave population areas because they 
have the most to lose if this whole thing goes south. I mean, enslaved people were a form of property and wealth, and wealthy people don't like instability. <laughs> I don't think the percentages just weren't high enough in most Texas counties or areas to produce that sort of a reaction, I think. McLennan County is probably much more typical. So we're going to get into kind of more of the Civil War. When I do my Civil War lecture, I split it into two, and I tell the students to come back to see who won. <laughs> to, so so we, don't want to, we don't want to do the whole thing to, today, Randy. We'll, we'll tease. Maybe we'll have Bob back and talk about the other. Yeah. But, you know, I, I am interested in, in kind of closing the loop with uh, Houston just because this yeah. tragic sort of end to, mm-hmm. you know. you. So I'm interested if you can close that yeah. loop for us, if you would. Well, Houston refuses to sign an oath of loyalty to the Confederacy after the state secedes. And that gives the legislature the grounds to kick him out, which they do. And he leaves, goes goes home, and dies in 1863. So he dies before the end of the war. He died at a point where it was pretty clear the Confederacy was not going to survive, and so he probably saw p- some of his prophecies starting to come true. But for him, that, that was not a... That was not, you know, these had been really, he was afraid of that. You know, he was really fearful of of how this would all end. So he dies a pretty destitute and kind of abandoned figure in some ways. Although what's interesting is that there were already some people in Texas who were starting to say, gosh, you, you know, Houston was right. <laughs> <laughs> and and he started to get a few, at the very end of his life, a few letters kind of saying, hey, would you run for governor again or, or something like that? So if he had lived longer, historians are not supposed to predict the future. So this is not a future of prediction. It's but, fun, though. Yeah, it, it's hard. If he had been lived long enough and been healthy enough, it is very hard to see how Houston would not have come back into Texas politics in a big way, having been essentially vindicated. Oh, he would have thrived under oh, Reconstruction. Yeah. He, mean, yeah. <laughs> so in that sense, it's easy to see if he'd lived just a few more years, but he doesn't. He doesn't. He lives long enough, interestingly, to see the Emancipation Proclamation. And once he hears about the proclamation, he frees his, his, the slaves that he owned. And, you know, that Houston was not ever uh, as vociferous a pro-slavery advocate as a lot of other uh, Southerners, white Southerners. But for any white slaveholding Southerner, that was the end of an entire world, an entire way of life. He saw Texas secede. He saw the Confederacy going downhill. He saw emancipation. Those were all things, I think, that were at the end of his life, probably huge disappointments to him. I just can't imagine, you know, somebody who was hearing his speech in Waco on the courthouse steps thinking, this guy is nuts because they're all, you know, for it. And then they're like, Oh my gosh, he was so right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that happened with a lot of people. I mean, because his predictions were so accurate. You know, his famous, the most famous one, you know, he says, you may, after, I'm paraphrasing, you, you may, after spending millions of dollars and hundreds of thousands of lives, win your independence, but I doubt it. <laughs> and he's right about that. One interesting note about his relationship to Waco in particular is 
Also, if he'd lived a good deal longer, he might have had a very different relationship with Waco because when he came to Waco, Baylor wasn't here yet. Hmm. And Houston was actually very good friends with some of the founding figures of Baylor. Rufus Burleson, one of the first presidents, baptized Houston. He was Houston's wife's pastor. And after a good long fight, uh, Houston's wife finally got him to be baptized. (laughs) And Judge Baylor actually swore Houston in when he was the first president of Texas. And after after he was baptized by Burleson, reportedly he gave $300 to Baylor for the education of Baptist ministers to make up for some of his past uh, misdeeds, <laughs> I think. Yeah, and Baylor will talk about this every now and then, how many Houston descendants have come to Baylor. Right. It's a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. evidently yeah. several of his children mm. uh, went there. So it would have been a little bit friendlier, maybe. Not to get too off topic, but was he kind of a ne'er-do-well in his previous life? Well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Again, Randy's the, only interested in the spicy stuff. Yeah. yeah. The short answer is yes. So uh, there's a period after he leaves Tennessee and before he kind of comes back to prominence in the Texas War for Independence, when he is living with, he's living with the Indians in parts of what's now Arkansas and northeastern Texas. The only accounts, I think, that during that time that we have of him are, are that he's drunk all the time. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually, when he, when he gets remarried in, in Texas, he first quits drinking and becomes something of a spokesman for temperance, although he drew the line that he wouldn't ban Sunday alcohol sales. He just couldn't go that far. But he becomes something of a spokesman for temperance and then finally, you know, becomes a Baptist. And he had a reputation well-earned for violence. I mean, he, he, he was a, could be a kind of a brawler and uh, was a military guy. His entire life, he'd been wounded at the Battle of Horseshoe Bend with Andrew Jackson and in the shoulder. And evidently, that wound never healed for his entire life. I read that the day he died, they were still changing the bandages on that wound. I have no Whoa. idea what that looked like or what oh that. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. What a haggard dude. Yeah. I mean, yeah, <laughs> to go on and do everything that he did after that, you know. I had known about him getting wounded at the Battle of San Jacinto, but he was already wounded. <laughs> he was already walking around with bullet holes in him what struck you you know because as i said you're you're new to this area so as you look into this and someone who's researched southern history quite a bit and this is a broader question as we think about western historians argue is california a different story yeah southern historians argue if florida is a different story but i but i'm wondering as you think about southern history and you think about texas Mm -hmm. how do you think about texas because this is an ongoing you know, do we live in the South or the West? This right. is an ongoing sort of yeah. thing we talk about. But so I'm I'm teaching a course right now at Baylor about the history of the American South, and I'm kind of the recurring question is in that course is kind of okay, what about Texas? I think that so so there's a kind of experiential answer, which is that I have lived in other parts of the South. I lived in South Carolina for several years, lived in Atlanta, Georgia for six years. My dad and his entire family are from Chattanooga, Tennessee. My wife is from South Carolina. I experience this part of Texas as very Southern. I, now I see it's a different type, right? It's a different kind of Southern, 
but in just the same way that Southern Louisiana is a different kind of Southern in the same way that Charleston is a different kind of Southern, I see, I really have experienced being here as, as a different variety of, of the South. And a lot of that I think has to do with immigration patterns and things like that. But, but if you want to look at it historically, I think I would go back to the question of the very experience of the Civil War, the fact that that Texas did in the end secede, go through the Civil War, go through Reconstruction. That's a kind of crucible that forms what we think of as Southernness and the South today. That's a pretty definitive argument, I think. And the other one is is slavery itself. I think if you if you look at that 1860 map and think about where cotton and slavery had gotten to and cotton was, you know, until until they built the bridge and the cattle started coming through. I mean, that's why that's what McLennan County was. That's what they were doing. That experience, you know, most historians would say slavery if you want to explain the south in just with just one thing civil war culture everything well it always it goes back to slavery Mm. if that's true if that's the answer then part of texas is definitely the south but the further west you go (laughs) that argument gets pretty tenuous and i think i think a lot of people would probably agree with that that Mm -hmm. as the further west you go it gets harder to make the case that you're still in something called the south yeah, we keep asking the question because is it Southern or Western? Because the answer is yes. Right, yeah. But, but it's such an interesting place where you have the biracial South meeting Mexican-American immigration yep. from the South Tejano yeah. culture in Texas. And so, yeah, it's an interesting place. I think Texas introduces something historically into the history of the South that you know typically when we think of the South and Southern history, you think of the black-white binary and Texas has never been completely that way. From the very beginning, there's been another significant group here. And in the 20th century, that has become, and 21st century, that's become true of the rest of the South as well. And so in that case, Texas is kind of a forerunner of a, a theme that becomes more prominent in the rest of the South. So I, I think in some ways, it's another argument for it being Southern. Mm-hmm. See, it's not necessarily spicy, Randy, but it's interesting. It's okay. I got I got all my spice with Sam Houston. <laughs> there was no dirty laundry in that, but it was really interesting. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, I, th- I think we ought to have Dr. Elder back uh, sometime to talk about some other topics. I'd but love to. I do want to thank you for being with us here today. Anything else you, that we didn't get to get to that you want to make sure you get in? I'm trying to think if there's anything about Houston. I really enjoyed reading about him a little <laughs> bit more for this whole thing. I don't think so. so. That wound must have been, I mean, how many decades old? Oh, well, it, I mean, it was, you know, it was a, 1814 yeah. to, to 1863, <laughs> but, but oh it's, a, it's a recurring thing. I mean, yeah. people, people mentioned it and the people, yeah, it's just crazy. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you know, Roosevelt gave one speech with a bullet in him and they, they talked to Teddy Roosevelt and they talked about that forever. Right. How many speeches <laughs> did, uh, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Countless number. He carried that bullet hole with him, was wounded again at San Jacinto. I mean, limped for the rest of his life after that battle and never seemed to really think about it, you know? Mm. I mean, I'm sure he did. I mean, it had to be painful. But So we'll have to come back and get a part two and finish up the Civil War? Yeah, we'll do okay. that at some point. 
Excellent. I mean, yeah. let's, give, let's give Dr. Elder a break. I yeah. Mean, <laughs> but yeah. At some point, he can come back. Excellent. That would yeah. be great. Yeah. Well, I look forward to it. Thank you so much for coming today. I loved it. Yeah, thanks, Bob. Cross the Brazos and Waco. Ride hard and I'll make it by dawn. Cross the Brazos and Waco. Thanks for listening to the Waco History Podcast. Like what you heard? Subscribe, rate, and review our show on iTunes so we can reach more listeners. You can find show notes and info on every episode at wacohistorypodcast.com and more info on Waco's past at wacohistory.org. Our theme music, used with permission, is Cross the Brazos at Waco, performed by the late Billy Walker. For more info on Billy's music, go to billywalker.com. We'll see you next time. time ago, as he dropped the guns that she hated, in the muddy Brazos below Cross the Brazos and Waco Ride hard and I'll make it by dawn Cross the Brazos and Waco I'll walk straight in old San Antonio Then the night came alive with gunfire He knew that at last it'd been found As the ranger's badge showed brightly El bandito lay on the ground Carmela knew he was dying That all of her dreams were in vain As she kissed his lips for the last time She heard him whisper again Cross the Brazos and Waco Ride hard and I'll make it by dawn Cross the Brazos and Waco I'm safe when I reach San Antonio I'm safe when I reach San Antonio